Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I am the host to this show where I get to interview Olympic athletes and hopefuls on their story and path to the games. And today, this is easily one of the most intriguing and incredible stories I have ever heard. Today we have Maria Koraleva. She is an incredible athlete. She's on the synchronized swimming team. She's made it to the Olympics. She was fantastic. This episode is actually going to be a two-parter. I'm going to break it up, the part one and part two. We actually recorded for I don't even know how many hours, edited it down a little bit, giving you guys a, a very healthy episode um, or two, part one and part two to listen to. Um, Maria is an incredible person. She's super motivated. She has her head on her shoulders and going in the right direction. And just her detail and depth, we go into her story, uh, the U.S. synchronized swimming team. It is absolutely incredible. So I'm extremely excited. The episode was actually recorded a long time ago. We're talking uh, September, if I'm not mistaken. But I really wanted to release it at a special time, uh, especially of the year. This is being released around Christmas time. So I wanted everybody, if you have a, any long car rides coming up, this is literally the perfect thing to listen to because the drama that it's real life drama it's real life people there there's things that went on that were just completely mind-boggling to me and i think uh you will really understand and get an understanding of what is going on there so uh, i really hope you guys enjoy this part one of this episode with maria it is incredible and yeah not much else i can say but enjoy the show all right another wonderful fantastic guest Today, Maria Koroleva. If no one knew, Koroleva means queen in Russian. Found that one out today. So we have a queen with us. That's fantastic. She is a synchronized swimmer on the United States swim team, uh, born April 10th, 1990 in Yaroslav, Russia, which at the time was actually the USSR. A little fun fact for everybody out there. Uh, her family emigrated to America, settling in Walnut Creek, California in 1999, where she then started competing in synchronized swimming events. She has attended and graduated from Stanford, where she also had saw some continued success in synchro, as the synchronized swimmers like to call it. At least that's what I've kind of picked up on so far. Um, she also has her master's from the University of San Francisco, which she got and finished during her training right around the time of the Rio Olympics. She has won multiple medals, including two silvers at the Pan American Games, and has attended the last two summer games in London and in Rio. Maria, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Fantastic. I love <laughs> it. We got a pretty sweet background. We're at Cal, so I'm curious. I'm going to ask some questions yeah. about that a little bit. Um, but if you don't mind, obviously, that was a very short synopsis to a very incredible life. If you don't mind giving us a little bit more detail and fleshing out some of these points for us. Yeah, of course. Any, any questions you have right off the bat? Yeah, I mean, what was it like, you know, obviously growing up in Russia, that particular part of Russia, I, I mean, I'll be totally honest, I really only know like three or four different cities or parts of Russia, <laughs> okay. so, and it's a gigantic place, or the USSR at the time, so what was it like growing up there and then eventually coming over um, to America, especially California, which is kind of looked at as its own little world inside of America, um, and then getting into synchronized swimming, I guess we'll start with all that. Yeah, I guess that was my first really big transition in my life and it happened when I was only nine years old it was the end of third grade so first big like change I guess that I one of many <laughs> of course in my life but I was born in Yaroslavl it's um geographically it's a pretty big city in Russia it's on the Volga River the, the biggest river in Russia it's a very industrial city um not super particularly known for anything really um but i did other than you right other than me yeah and it's it's funny actually there's another girl who competed in rio in rhythmic gymnastics 
for the U.S., who was also from the same city in Russia as me and also moved to the U.S. And funny enough, we ended up competing at the same games together. So, but that's besides the point. So I was born and raised in Russia. And during the 90s, it was just a really, really tough time in Russia financially right after the Soviet Union crashed. So financially, we were not in a good position at all. Both of my parents have you know, the highest degrees of education. My mom was a doctor, my dad had his PhD, and we, they were just, we were barely getting by, let's just put it that way. So because my dad was a software engineer, he got offered a job in San Francisco, and this was right at the beginning of the whole tech boom in Silicon Valley. So we really just jumped at the chance to come to the U.S. like so many people at that time, especially Russians, again, because of just the really tough financial conditions in Russia. So we just picked up and went. Honestly, it was just a crazy, crazy change. We came to the U.S. literally with just $100. My uncle gave us some money just to, you know, just some, some cash to get started. And it was really, to me, it was like the definition of, of an American dream. You know, you come from a place where you don't feel like you have many opportunities to the U.S. where it is the land of opportunity and you can, you know, you come here in search of a better life. So that's, that was really the reason why, why we moved. And let's just say it was not easy. <laughs> so for my parents who had both lived in Russia for, you know, 30 years of their life, who didn't know any English, I think it was a lot harder of a transition for me. I was nine. I still went to school in Russia for a couple of years. So when I came here, I spoke like barely any English, just a couple phrases here and there. But I was the one that had to really assimilate into the culture very quickly because I had to go to school right away. My dad's work was like 80% Russian. So he didn't really have to learn the language right away. So I was the one who kind of had the burden in the family of learning English and, you know, getting by and going to the store and translating for my family. So it wasn't easy. I, there were times when I was like, I, I'm just not going to school. I, I don't want to go to school because you're just, you're sitting there. And I went from being an A student in Russia to getting, you know, D's and F's here because I just didn't understand anything that was going on. So yeah, it was a, it that was sounds, a transition. Yeah, that sounds pretty crazy. I mean, I moved in fifth grade, so I was a little bit older and I moved like 20 minutes down the road. And I thought that was pretty difficult. Um, I can only imagine what it would have been like if I moved to a completely other country where I don't know anybody, I can't speak the language. Family didn't have too much money to be able to, to, to do a lot of things. And then, as you said, you had the burden of being the translator. You were pretty much the conduit yeah. between uh, the, the rest of the country, essentially. I mean, if we want to put it to that far, but the, the community and your parents and they needed to understand what was going on so they could do what they needed to do to run the family. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a crazy amount of pressure for a nine-year-old at the time. I mean, having to do all that, that stuff and, and on top of it, you have to do school and, and you're doing all these things. I mean, that just sounds absolutely incredible that you were able to get yeah. that far and, and I mean, clearly get to where you are today. I mean, that's, that's impressive. Yeah. Thank you. No, <laughs> I thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but so what, like how, what did you learn from all those experiences and being able to kind of, I guess, figure out very quickly what you needed to do and how you needed to do it. Like how, how did you, how were you able to take all that into account and just be like, okay, whatever. I mean, I'm nine, but like, Hey, let's just go. Let's figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess. And again, now that I look back, like looking at it retroactively, you can see how these experiences shaped the way mm -hmm. that you are today. And for me, definitely at a young age, like that was my first real 
challenge that I had to overcome. And it wasn't something that I chose to do. It was just a situation that I was thrown into and it was like a sink or swim. I mean, I had uh, no choice but to, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, look at you, look at you. All right, keep going. I'm sorry. You, you know, you, you, I had to go to school. I had to do these things. It wasn't like I was brave or courageous. It was, there was no other choice. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it was a really good learning experience in just facing a challenge and overcoming it because you had to, and you, you know, you had to live life and you had to, you had to keep going. So, and I know that in my synchro career and just in my life in general, there was a lot of things that came up that I had no control over. And again, in order to move forward, I had to overcome those things, but because I had an experience like this very early on in life, I feel like it helped shape the way that I deal with these difficult situations later on. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent that, that absolutely sounds attributable. Um, I mean, again, having such an impactful, impactful part of your life happen very quickly and being able to learn from it, obviously, pretty much, I'm sure anything after that has probably been like, well, I mean, I learned English and was able to help my family create a, you know, you know, a nice spot here in America. I guess this isn't really that bad. I'm sure you were able to kind of compare this to a lot of things that went on. Like, I'm sure there was a test at Stanford or even in high school or something. And you kind of were like, well, actually... It's really not that big a deal now that I think about it. And it probably has made your life extremely, I mean, that was probably very stressful, but moving forward, everything is probably, I'm hopefully thinking that it's been a little bit more relaxing considering you don't have to move to another country where you don't know the language <laughs> all that often. I think, I think I didn't realize like how intense that was and how hard that was until much later mm-hmm. in life. And there were some things that happened in my single career that were extremely challenging that I kind of feel like probably impacted me more than, than this move. And I think, mm-hmm. When you're young, you just don't really mm-hmm. you don't really grasp the the gravity of what it is you're doing. You're just doing it because you're young, and this is just what your life is like. And then, only like 20 years later, you come to realize, oh gosh, yeah, that was hmm. kind of hard. That good was, job, uh... like good job, Maria. You, you know, you you made it through that. Pat yourself on the back one more time. You yeah. definitely deserve yeah. it. That is incredible. Um, so obviously, you brought it up a couple of times. You are a synchronized swimmer, synchro, as the kids are calling it these days. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us kind of how, I mean, again, so, so you're quickly thrown into America. You have to learn the language. You have to do all these things. Why, you know, you started synchro, synchro in almost, you know, a few months after you got here. What was the reason to start it so quickly? Or was that kind of an outlet? Tell us a little bit about how you got into it and how you started, I mean, developing that side of yourself. Mm-hmm. So back when I was in Russia, I had done a little bit of gymnastics, a little bit of swimming, nothing like super intense, just more recreationally. So I did did have like a very short sport background. And then when we came to the US, you know, I spent a couple months in school, then the summer came, then school started back up and my, my parents and my mom really wanted me to, you know, make some friends, kind of assimilate into the culture a little bit more. So they thought, you know, what kind of activity could you do outside of school that could kind of help you do that. Mm-hmm. And so in school, we just got a flyer for a two week crash course in synchronized swimming. At the time, like I really didn't know what that was. Like I wasn't one of those kids who watched it on TV and like knew I wanted to be an Olympian right away. But I knew that it was kind of a combination of both swimming and gymnastics, which I had already done. So I figured, let's just, let's just give it a go. So it was literally just a two week quick thing. They taught us like very, very basic things. And then at the end of the two weeks, they asked, do you want to join the year round team? And I'm not going to say I like fell in love with it from the first time that I ever tried it, but I figured, you know, why not? I'll, I'll try it out and see how it goes. And then I got stuck in it for, <laughs> for 17 years of my life. So yeah, it was kind of, um, 
it kind of just fell into my lap. And then I, I did my first year in nine, it was 99 to 2000. That was my first season with the Walnut Creek Aquanuts who luckily enough was, is, is still one of the top, one of the top clubs in the country, possibly in the entire world. We have tons of Olympian coaches. So I feel like I really fell into the best place that I possibly could have in the U S for, for synchro. So I think that was, that was pretty lucky on my end. That's, I mean, create your own luck. Um, but at the same mm-hmm. time, yeah, some of these things just, it lines up perfectly. Your dad got the mm-hmm. correct job to move to the correct city in the correct state for you to, at school, happen to be given a flyer for a two-week course and something you really didn't know yep. about, what you <laughs> thought was kind of interesting. I mean, I just love hearing these stories that, you know, pretty much every Olympic athlete has seemed to have had a very, very at a very young age, something per chance something mm-hmm. something not I'm not going to call it random but some occurrence happens that kind of leads you down a path and if that didn't happen obviously your life would be 100% different but it, yeah. it happened to send you down that path a flyer let's just think of like at the most basic you received a flyer and you said okay sure let's try it out and now you know a couple years later you're talking to me about your olympic athlete career and I just I always love seeing um seeing how those dots connect and seeing how all that stuff happens is I just think it's incredible yeah, no, that's, it's, it's really crazy to think like how different my life could have been if I didn't do that two week crash course. Like maybe there was some alternate way that I would have gotten into the sport in the first place. And especially if we hadn't moved here, like my life would be 180 mm. degrees, completely different than what it is now. So yeah, it's pretty crazy to see like how those little choices you make long, long time ago got you to, to where you are today. I love it. I just think it's yeah. so cool. I think it's so fantastic. So you got into synchronized swimming. You're obviously, you're what, nine years old, 10 years old, whatever it is. Um, and you just do it. You, you signed up for that two-week course. You do it then for a year. How, I mean, you've done it for a long time since, as you said, what, the next 17 years. Mm-hmm. What was it like, I guess, growing up through it, with it, I mean, at such a young age and then finally getting into high school? When was their actual aspirations of, Hey, maybe I can go to college and do this. Hey, maybe I can go to the Olympics Mm -hmm. and do this. When did those dreams, I guess, start? And when did the realizations of some of these things start? Yeah. When I first started synchro, I definitely was not one of those kids that showed a ton of promise when I, you know, at at a young age, there's, there's those kids with, they're like the little prodigies and the coaches Mm -hmm. know that they're going to be the next big thing. And I wasn't, I'm not going to say I was bad, but I was always kind of in the middle of the pack, maybe a little bit higher than the middle, but fairly average. So for the first couple of years that I swam, I just more did it for the social aspect. You know, it was fun to be in the water, to dance around to music. But after a couple of years, my competitive nature started to come out and I wanted to, you know, be the best on my team, have our team win. I wanted to see, you know, how far I could go as an athlete, but I still never, I never thought that going to the Olympics was an option. So again, unlike a lot of kids, I didn't have that Olympic dream from the get go simply because I did not think that it was possible for me, maybe for somebody else, but not for me. And back then, this was like early, early to maybe mid 2000s, collegiate synchro and elite synchro were very, there were two very different routes. So either you go the collegiate route, which is more, you know, you have your school, your school sport balance, you know, you're, you're, you're still very focused on getting an education. And then if you wanted to go the national team route and try to go to, go to the Olympics, you have to put college completely on hold and you just have to go the national team route. And back then, I really, 
I wasn't ready to say I wanted to do one, one or the other, I guess. Mm-hmm. My parents, obviously both intellectuals, for them, school was always number one. So they're like, you can do synchro as long as you want. We, you know, we'll help support you. But school has to be number one. You have to get good grades. You have to go to a good college. So for me, and again, I'm, I'm very competitive with others and with myself. So I was always trying to be, you know, best grades, best, best synchro ability. And it wasn't until I was about 14 or 15 that I really got that little spark in me that something kind of started in me thinking that I could possibly go to the top. And it was actually one of my coaches. So when I was 14, I made what's called the A team in, mm-hmm. in, in Walnut Creek. So this is like the top team of the club. And these are girls who are like in their mid, mid to early twenties. And I was 14 and I made the team. I was the youngest member. And for me, that was my first big, like, Whoa, this is awesome. Like I get to swim up with these, with these girls who are so much better than me. There were a couple girls training for the 2008 Olympics. And my coach at the time had said, she sat me down and she said, look, if you commit yourself to this sport, if you continue going the way that you're going, you could possibly have a shot at making it to the top. And for me, that was really my first big aha moment. And it really took somebody else telling me like, look, I think you have what it takes to make it for me to actually have that thought in my mind. Because I think when you're young, if a coach or a mentor doesn't instill that in you, it's hard to kind of get that within yourself when you're not the best. When you're the best, you think, oh, yes, I'm going to go to the top and, you know, everybody thinks I can do it. So I think I can do it too. For me, I didn't feel like I had that from my early coaches. So I just, I never had that belief in myself until somebody came up to me and said, look, I think you can do this. Do, do you want to do it? And that really birthed the, the belief that I had in myself that I could, you know, I could possibly make it to the Olympics. And so that really began my journey, I guess. I feel like my journey really, really started probably that year. And I really started to look towards possibly going to the Olympics. And I knew that in 2008, so I was 18, but I knew that I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't good enough to be on the team. I think the youngest member that we've ever had on a U.S. national team is, um, was 17 years old maybe, but I just knew that like I, I just wasn't at that level. So I still went to the Olympic trials in 2006 just to kind of get my name out there, but I knew that that wasn't really a possibility. So 2012 was what I was really looking towards. And when I finished high school, again, came the decision of what next? Do you go to college? Do you go the national team route? And this was kind of the beginning of blending the two programs because everybody wanted to go to college. It was that time in the U.S. when you really couldn't do much without a college degree. Like, and you, 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 if you were an Olympian and you finished at the age of 26 and had no college degree, it was really hard to get back into it and, you know, start a career at age 30. So, and again, my parents kept saying, you know, we don't want you to just drop out of school. We really want you to go to college. So I knew that Stanford had a really good synchro program and so did Ohio State. So those are the two schools that I was kind of looking at. Obviously, Stanford I'm, has a little bit more of a prestigious. Mm-hmm. I'm happy uh, you went to Stanford over <laughs> Ohio State, by the way. That's just, that's just a personal opinion. So, <laughs> Thank you. Stanford and Ohio State are big rivals, obviously, in synchro. But I actually, for the longest time, I had wanted to go to Cal. 
because it was close to my house, but they don't have a synchro program. So uh, maybe they will soon though. <laughs> You're there now. I mean, we'll get to that, but Hey, maybe soon. Yeah, they will. Possibly. <laughs> so I was recruited to Stanford. Let's be honest here. I would have never gotten in if I didn't have the recruiting aspect of it. I mean, I had good grades. It's not like I was a, a bad student or anything, but for the level of academics that they require from a regular student, I was just slightly below that. So thank you to Synchro for, for giving me that opportunity. So once I got in and luckily I got to apply early, so I didn't have to go through the, the, the long wait period between the application and, and finding out. And I got in and that was like the best day ever. You know, you get the academics, you get the Synchro training, and I was off and I didn't know how the heck I was going to do it. My freshman year would have been the 0809 uh, school year. So that was like right, right at the beginning of the, the 2012 Olympic quad. I had no idea how I was going to do the school and the synchro thing together because to, to get my scholarship, I still had to swim on the Stanford team. So I did not know how I was going to balance both, but I knew that I really wanted to do both. So... I was gonna, I was just gonna go for it and you know, not really have a specific plan, but just kind of try to figure it out from there. And it worked and you figured it out, obviously. That's the important part, right? Um, I just think that's such a cool story with, you know, again, just being in the, the, the right spot, happenly, uh, happenstance, I guess, being near the, the, the Walnut, what was it? The Walnut Creek, Walnut uh, Creek Aquanuts? Aquanuts. Aquanuts. Yeah. Love that name, by the way. That is just phenomenal. Yeah. And being there with them. And I mean, at 14, you're swimming with girls who are training for the Olympics. So you saw and you understood what it took and what you needed to do um, to get to obviously the point that you reached multiple times. So I just mm -hmm. think it's, it's, that is so great. And then your coach coming up to you and saying, you have a legitimate shot. And as you said, that's kind of where your journey started, even though we know it started a, a few years behind that mm -hmm. um, with you know, being able to overcome coming to an entire new country, not being able to speak the language and being able to kind of work your way out of that problem and figure that situation out. So that's just incredible. You get to Stanford, obviously. You, as you said, you really didn't have a plan. You didn't know what you were doing. Um, but again, few years before you saw what the training was like and what they needed to do to get to the Olympic. You went to the Olympic trials. You've seen these people, you understood what it took. And, um, you seem like a very, not headstrong. You seem like a very smart person that knows exactly what they want and how they want to do it. So something tells me you were able to kind of figure that out along the way. What was a day at Stanford? Like, I mean, let's be honest, the academics are ridiculous mm -hmm. and I'm sure you were fine and you're just being a little humble to get into where you did. Um, but at the same time, you still needed to, to keep up, I guess you, uh, you seem like a competitive person that you're not going to, you know, just be like, Oh, I'm at Stanford. That means I can get B's. Something told me, tells me that you were still, you know, striving for A's and striving to do the best mm -hmm. you could academically as well as in, in, in synchronized swimming. So what was a day at Stanford? Like, what was that like having to juggle all, you know, a personal life, uh, mm -hmm. college swimming, national team training and swimming, as well as the academics that come with, you know, such a prestigious university. Yeah, I think a lot of people will say like college is the best time of your life. And for me, it definitely was. I think, first of all, in terms of school, you're in class less than you would be in high school and you get to make up your own schedule. So, you know, you have an hour here, an hour there. So that was nice, like being able to have a little bit more time to myself. Synchro wise, we were only allowed to train 20 hours a week. That is the NC2A mm -hmm. uh, collegiate rule. But while I was in Walnut Creek, we trained four and a half hours a day. And now I went from doing that to training three hours a day. And so that part was awesome too. I was like, oh, this is great. I get to train a little bit less. I get to go to school a little bit less. But at the same time came the challenge of 
how do I balance my time? Sometimes when you have a ton of time and you have a lot of work to do, you just leave it off till the end mm -hmm. because you're like, I have tons of time. I can go, you know, party and see friends and, and all of that. So it was great, but it was challenging at the, at the, at the same time. I think my first quarter at Stanford, I, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Like I had no idea. And I think a lot of people come into college just wanting to explore and, and kind of see, see what's out there. So I took these random classes and it was like a shock to me. I felt like an idiot. You know, you go from high school where you're, I was still like, you know, at the top of my class, maybe not number one. I didn't have like a, a 5.0 like some people, but you go from feeling like you're really smart and then you come to this place where everybody's really smart and people have like written books and started their own companies already in high school. And you're, you just feel like you're just little old me and people are like, oh, well, you were already on the junior national team. You know, that's really cool. But to me, I felt already like very below all these people who were just so dang smart. I remember sitting in these classes and being like, gosh, people just have like the most intellectual thoughts. Like, I don't know how they even come up with these thoughts. Like, I don't have that kind of like level of thought. So I think at the beginning, that was kind of a challenge for me. It was really trying to find my own niche and trying to and finding what I enjoyed as I got further into it. I started taking classes that I was actually interested in. And then I felt like I was kind of in my own element. But that first quarter, like I remember I got all B's and I was crushed because I never, like I never got B's. So that was definitely kind of a learning experience. And luckily that year we got to stay with our club teams or our collegiate teams for the entire year until the very end. And that's when we joined the national team training. So I guess to preface this, I was, I obviously didn't have my citizenship when I first moved to the US. We got our citizenship in 2007. So I was 17 and that's when I had made my first junior national team. Before that I would go to the trials, but I wasn't a citizen. So I was only allowed to swim as like a honorary person. Mm -hmm. So the judges would still get to know me and see me and know that I am still here, but I wasn't able to actually be on the team. So that was hard for me, like seeing my teammates go off the national team and I knew that I, I couldn't. So 2007, 2008, my junior and senior year were my first two years on the junior national team. Then when I went to college, I made my first senior team in 2009. And so luckily, like I said, we got to spend the entire season at home with our clubs, which was great because I feel like I really got the collegiate experience and the student athlete experience is different than the regular student experience. But then I also had an even different experience with being a national team athlete at the same time. But luckily for that first bit, I got just, I got to just live as a student athlete, which mm -hmm. was great. And it was really fun. Let's just say that. Yes, yes, <laughs> and yes. And then spring quarter. So the quarters are 10 weeks and we spent eight out of those 10 weeks training at Ohio state for the world championships. So I was still in school. I didn't take a leave of absence. So I had to take all my books, all my studies and pretty much, teach myself these classes that are taught by Stanford professors remotely. So that was, again, another big challenge in itself. I didn't really do that well that quarter. I remember getting a C, like a C minus in a sociology class that was supposed to be an easy class. And I got a C and I couldn't figure out like, how, why are you not able to teach yourself these things? But it was, you know, we're training 10 hours a day. You're trying to do this work afterwards. It was, it was challenging, definitely. But that was, that was my first glimpse of trying to combine the two worlds, the collegiate swimming world and then the national team world. So yeah, so that summer was my first summer on the senior team. 
it was not my best experience because I trained all the way up to the world championships. There was, this was the world championship, the aquatic world championships in Rome. And about a week before the competition, it was 4th of July. We were training in Florida at the time. I got a call from my mom saying that my dad was in the ICU. He was pretty much like on the verge of dying. And she's like, you need to, you need to come home right now. Like this is really bad. So a week before the meet, I flew back home, missed the competition. So I was training all summer for this. And then something had happened to my dad and, and it, I just, I had to go home. I, there was no way I could have stayed out there. So not really the best ending to my first year on, on the national team, but I knew that this was still something I wanted to do and I still wanted to, you know, come back and, and train. It just, it was like a hard first year, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I mean, you're 18, 19 at the time. Mm-hmm. None of that uh, seems very easy to deal with. Obviously the transition into college, then doing all of these things, trying to do all these things at once. I mean, getting a C minus in a class taught by yourself that's normally taught <laughs> by Stanford professors sounds like a win in my book. And I can I, understand I, how yes. it's not in your book, but at the same time, I mean, it's incredible. Hopefully again, looking back on it, you can say, okay, it's not that bad, right? Yeah. At the time I was like, come on, Maria. Like, could you really not teach yourself personality psychology? Like you read a textbook, you take a test, like how hard can this be? <laughs> but again, it's Stanford. Like even the, the simplest classes, they, they, they really push you to take even the simplest concepts and apply them to these much more complex scenarios and situations. So yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, I can absolutely see it being tough. Stanford's one of the best colleges in the, in the country, potentially the world, you know, that kind of thing. So no, I think, mm-hmm. you know, definitely, uh, I think you did a great job teaching yourself all that <laughs> stuff. You. So uh, congratulations on that. I yeah. definitely would not have been able to do it. So, um, so obviously you're training. Unfortunately, your father gets sick. That's, that's not a fun situation to have to be in. Obviously, you're going to go home and see him if it's if it's a, if it's a bad mm-hmm. situation. That's completely understandable. But it is disappointing that after all of that training, not being able to go with your team, not being able to do any of that. So the next year rolls around. What happens? I guess this is then your sophomore year, where another year closer to the Olympics. What at what point do you have to choose a path, or were you able to just say, "Nope, I'm still going to do both, and I'm still going to crush it at both, and then I'm going to go to the Olympics"? How exactly mm-hmm. did that whole situation turn out? Yeah, so the next three years, and this this stuff you will not find online. Perfect. You will not find on my Wikipedia Exclusive. page. Exclusive. There's really not there's really not much out there about this because I think this is kind of a almost like a hush hush topic in the synchro world. What really happened between 2010 and 2012, um, and I think I think that people should know the things that I went through, the things that my team went through the, the people that I, that I grew up with and the people who went through this with me, but it was, it was a big mess. Let's just, let's start there. The three years that we went through 2010, 2011, 2012, I, I don't wish that upon any athlete. My sophomore year, we were, I was, we were trying to do the USA Synchro was trying to figure out how to get these collegiate collegiate girls to train collegially and on the national team at the same time. So we were trying to do both. So the whole fall and all of winter, we tried to go back and forth. We did training camps while still being in school, while still training for, for Stanford and for the national team. It was really hard. Like I felt like I was nor, not here nor there. I was constantly traveling. Some days we would go to, we would drive to San Francisco for training. We would come back, go to class, then go to Stanford practice. 
in the afternoon. So it, I was just kind of all over the place. And that spring, when the full-time training rolled around, I, I had had this problem for, for a couple of years, but my hip, I started having some, some really bad pain in my hip. So I was going to, to different doctors and they finally said, look, we think you have a torn labrum, you need surgery. So the, the motion that we do in the water with the, it's called egg beater. It's not really like what your hip joint is supposed to, is meant to do. So, and it was, I was, it was, it was really bad pain. So I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, to keep going like this. So instead of doing national team that summer, I decided to take time off, have hip surgery. And so that whole summer I was just doing rehab. I watched the national team go to the world cup. They did really well. These are all my, all my teammates. It was a really tough summer training for them, but I was not a part of it. And I knew that this was something that I had to do in order to, you know, be able to keep swimming. Mm-hmm. And then my junior year. So one, one question about that, obviously a uh, torn labrum is a pretty huge surgery. That's not, I mean, my mom had a torn labrum and it's, she's now had to have her soldier replaced because it just didn't, it didn't work as well as she hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but at the same time, what is like knowing that you still had a couple years until the Olympics was having, was this a decision made consciously saying like, okay, I'm going to be able to rehab as much as possibly needed. Cause I've, already talked to multiple athletes that come back to try and make the Olympics six to eight months mm-hmm. later when they do have a, a, a pretty, um, uh, pretty bad injury. Was that something that you were like, okay, if I need to do it, I need to do it now. So that way I can be completely rehabilitated and then get all the training that I need to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. That was like, that was my exact train of thought. I thought we still have two years till, till the Olympics. I really can't go on with this pain. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm miserable. I need to do this now I know I'll be able to get back they said three to four months I could start getting back into into the sport and I figured summer that's the perfect time I'll just take take the season off and then and then get back into it so and luckily the hip thing ended up working great my the surgeon who did it is like a world-renowned surgeon specifically in hips so that was that was awesome that seems like the guy you want to guy guy you want to go to so that (laughs) makes exactly so I took the summer off and then that fall was when I I thought okay this is when I'm coming back and that's when things kind of really went downhill for, for our organization as a whole. So the next two years were a bit of a, a, well, not a bit, a lot of a mess. So that fall, I signed a piece of paper at Stanford saying that I was leaving for two years. Um, we were going to do full-time training to try to qualify for the 2012 Olympics. And we, they flew us out to Colorado Springs, which is where the training center is. And the team, there was probably 10 of us. We ended up showing up there. And our head coach was not there. And our executive director at the time, our national team director, had flown out. And they told us that our head coach was being investigated, that there was no, they had no information as what was going to happen. So they pretty much brought us out to this training center without our coaches, without our families. It seems like it was just so that we could be in an isolated place without any other influence. And they, they interrogated us. They gave us no direction on what was going to happen. They told us that there were reports of emotional abuse, physical abuse. And so they were trying to figure out, you know, has this coach done something wrong? And this was a coach that most of us really believed in. And we felt like, even though she was very, very tough, we felt like she was the only one who could get us to qualify for the Olympics. It, at the time it was, well, and it still is very difficult for the U.S. to qualify a team into the Olympics. It's a lot easier to qualify a duet, but not a team. So we felt like even though she's tough, there was no other person that could get us to the Olympics. 
And in the end, so they kept us at this training center for about four weeks. We're not knowing what's going to happen. And this is like, we just signed our lives away to, to train for two years. I am not in school and I could be, and we're here. We, we have no idea what we're doing. Nobody knows what's going on. And finally, at the end of the training camp, they tell us the coach has been terminated. Go home. So, and this is, again, I was ready to start full-time training and I go home. It was Thanksgiving. We have no team. We have no coach. We have no training location. What do I do? This was, this was my plan. And our team was really split into two camps. There was one camp who was still, which was, I was part of, which was still with the, with the coach who was fired. And we still really supported her. We wanted to be on her side. And she came from a club here in California who was very close to the Aquanuts. So we were all kind of in, on her side. And then there was the other side, a couple of my teammates who were still siding with the national team program and the decision that was made pretty much. So that was the first kind of rift in, in the team, which I think is really hard as well mm -hmm. when you're training with these girls and then all of a sudden half the people go one way, half the people go another way. So I went back home and I was like, what am I, what the heck am I going to do? The holidays rolled around and I just made a last minute decision, I'm going to go back to school. And again, holidays, all the offices are closed, everything's closed. I showed up on the first day of school in January, had no place to live, like couldn't sign up for classes. I bummed around from, from place to place for a couple weeks, waiting to get housing. Luckily, they accepted me, everything was okay. But I was heartbroken, like I had a plan, I was going to train for the Olympics. Now I had nothing, like I had no idea what, what was going to happen. So luckily I did have something to fall back on, which was my, which was the collegiate program. So I spent that quarter, that quarter at Stanford swimming and the national team was starting to kind of rebuild. They hired a new coach from Spain. There was a there's some people came to the trials and they kind of had, had assembled a team that was going to be training in Indianapolis. And, you know, while I was in school, I'm thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do? I still want to go to the Olympics. I don't really support you know, this direction that they're going in, they, they had picked a team of some people were, were pretty good, but because they didn't get enough support for, for the program, they had to fill the team with athletes who were just not quite at the level that they needed them to be just, just to have a team full of people. And finally I decided, okay, I still want to go to the Olympics. I can't go to the Olympics swimming for a club program. I have to be on the national team. So I ended up saying, okay, I'm going to come back to the national team, even though I don't really agree with, with what's going on. I, I just have to be, I have to be in there. So I ended up joining the team like two weeks before the world championships in Shanghai. I swam one program, only the, the technical program and team. And that was kind of my, I was back. And there was still a big rift in the synchro community. There were people who were saying, oh, you know, you went back to the national team, like you're a traitor you should be supporting this other camp of, of these coaches who were supporting the coach who was fired. So it was very, like a very tumultuous time in, in synchro. So after we went to the world championships, we did not do well. We did not have a good performance at all. We came back and we had the trials for the Pan American games and the Pan American games is the first chance to qualify for the Olympics. So whoever wins the Pan Ams gets an automatic spot in the games. And at that trials, they were picking the Pan American duet as well. So I went from swimming, I, I swam one program at the World Championships two weeks later was the trials. And the coach had asked me, could you handle swimming both team and duet? 
So team has two programs, Duet has two programs. So I was swimming one program at Worlds. She's asking me, can you handle swimming four now? And my hip was okay. I was still having issues with my back. So it was kind of a new pain that was developing. It was getting worse and worse. But for me, that question was, do you want to go to the Olympics or not? Because once you make the duet, that's kind of your, your ticket to be in the Olympic duet. And for me, I didn't know if I was going to, if my body was going to be able to handle it, but I thought I'd better try. Like if I get a chance to be in that duet, if they select me to be in that duet, I'm hanging on to that spot for dear life. Like I am not letting that go. Even if I have to swim through pain, I'm, I'm going to do it. So I said, yes, even though I had no, I had no idea if I was going to be able to physically or mentally make it. I said, yes, let's, let's do it. So they ended up selecting me into the duet. Again, it was crazy because just a month before, I wasn't even on the team. I came on, swam one routine. A couple of weeks later, I was named to the Pan American duet. And this was a new, a new duet for us. It was myself and Mary Kilman. We had the Pan American Games in six weeks. So we had to get two programs ready in six weeks. For synchro, that's unheard of. Like people, you, you can't. You can't put a duet together at that high of a level and swim well in a month and a half. That's just not possible. And like that month and a half was probably the hardest month and a half of my life. Getting, having to swim up to her level. The coach who they hired, Mayu, was very tough. She's Japanese, swam for Japan, coached in Spain, you know, got an Olympic medal for Spain or coached them to an Olympic medal. And she was very, very tough. I had never experienced a coach who was that tough. And so physically, it was really hard. Mentally, it was really hard. My body was always in, in pain. My back was always in pain. I got a couple injections in my lower back just to kind of get the pain to be manageable. I was still in pain, but I knew like, this is, this is my chance. You are not letting this go. Um, I guess I'll stop there and ask if you, if you have any questions. I, I mean, just <laughs> all of that is just so cool. I think it's incredible that you've been able to, I mean, go and get through all of that. I mean, so, so like, obviously the, you sign your life away, as you said, I know we're going back a couple minutes now, but you sign your life away essentially saying like, Hey, Stanford, I'm going to be back in a couple of years. I'm trying to go to the Olympics. You go, you find out this awful news. You're then just, I don't want to say held in captivity, but you're pretty much just like, no, held. That's, what, that's what it felt like. Yeah. Like you're yeah. just like held off to the side for an entire month, four weeks. Yeah. You said. You're just held off to the side. I mean, you're doing some training, but there doesn't seem to really be a direction. You find out at the end of that four weeks, sorry, your coach is gone. I know everything you guys have worked for and I know you're going to be here for the next couple of weeks, but unfortunately, or the next couple of years, but unfortunately you're not going to be able to. So go mm -hmm. back home. All right. Like, thanks. You know, you, you, you could have probably found this news out a little bit easier or yeah. better and you would have been yeah. able to stay in Absolutely. school, and be able to still train because it sounds like, again, like training is important. And, you know, if you were at least able to train with your collegiate team, it would be still helpful to you as an athlete rather than mm -hmm. going over here and kind of, I'm not going to say flailing around in the water for four weeks, but definitely not having the same type of direction or structure that you would have if you were, uh, you know, able to be with, um, a, a team with a coach, which mm -hmm. seems pretty important, especially yeah. for, I mean, for all sports, but for your sport specifically, it seems like having a coach in a direction is extremely oh, necessary, especially yeah. when you're trying to put together these routines of extreme difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, so then you're told to go home and you go home and you're just like, well, what the heck am I supposed to do now? You're able to, to hop around and, and hang out at Stanford. What was that? What was that? What were those four weeks like? What was then that transition period? Like, 
you had such peaks and valleys in the span of what, like a couple months of saying, I'm going to go to the Olympics. This is going to be amazing too. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Now I don't have a coach. I don't have a team. What the heck am I going to do to, okay, I'm just going to go back to Stanford. Like you signed a life away. You're not going to Stanford. Now you're going back to Stanford. Mm-hmm. Are people on your collegiate team looking at you? Not funny, but like, Hey, what's this girl doing? Is she coming back? She's leaving. Like what, what were all those emotions mm-hmm. like in that? I mean, what sounds like a couple month span? Yeah, it was it was really not easy. And I guess the one good thing was there was another girl who I had swam with. She was my duet partner back in Walnut Creek. So we had swam together for maybe 10 years. And then we went to Stanford together. We were still duet partners and we were kind of doing this thing together. So we went to the national team together. We came back together. So at least I had somebody else who was doing it with me. But the rest of our collegiate team, I mean, they were just there to have the collegiate experience and for them to have us leave and then come back, we were the best two on the team. So we went and took, you know, two Mm -hmm. of the spots on the team who could have gone to somebody else. I think for them, it was a little tough. And to be honest, like we were not happy people that year. Like we were not fun to be around because we're stressed out. Again, we don't know what's happening. We thought we were going to be going after our dream and now we're not. And now there's no direction. There's, there's nothing. And you know, to be honest, I, I really try, I just tried to cover up the stress with, you know, partying and going out and just using any, anything that could kind of cover up the, the pain and, and the stress that I was going through. Obviously would not recommend handling a stressful situation like that to anyone, but at the time, like that's, that's all I could do. I, I didn't know what else to do. So it really, it was really not easy. And then what, um, my partner, Olivia, what she ended up doing was instead of going back to the national team, like I did, she ended up going to train with this coach who was fired. So we were going kind of together on the same journey for years and years and years. And then we split off. So I went to join the national team, kind of like joining the enemy. And mm-hmm. then she went to work with this coach who was let go of by, by the national team. So that whole year was just a mess. And I guess I kind of failed to give the background on this, but my dad had gotten very sick. So after that incident, pretty much he got diagnosed with hepatitis C and it's something he, it's a something you get through your blood. He got it back when he was young back in Russia, when they had to do a blood transfusion and back in the eighties, they didn't check for infected blood and hepatitis C, they call it the silent killer because you don't find out that you have it until 20, 30 years later, by that time, you already have cirrhosis of the liver. You're, it's pretty much too late. So I'm at Stanford. I just like lost, felt like I lost out on this Olympic dream. My dad is very sick. My mom is at home, you know, taking care of him. So everything was very tumultuous. Like this wasn't going well. This wasn't going well. School. I was just, I was just trying to get by to be honest and it felt like every aspect of my life was not going well. So it was a, not a good year for me. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was very, very tough. That sounds, I mean, that, that sounds like, I mean, as you said, you wouldn't wish that upon anyone. That just sounds like so much at the same time. Again, you're relatively young. So you're 18 or 19 years old. Like, I mean, we understand again at nine, you went through a pretty crazy uh, period of life, which hopefully it sounds like that was able to help you through mm-hmm. what you went through. 10 yeah. years later, pretty much almost on the dot, let's call it. Um, and you've been able to, I mean, you've been able to overcome that. You then over, overcame this and it's just, I mean, it splitting with the 
girl you've been partners with for 10 years. Obviously, you both having different visions and, and views about the situation. And you even said you agreed and you didn't want the other coach to be fired and you agreed with what she did. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you've put so much time and energy and money and blood and sweat and tears into what you've been doing. If you're going to, you know, you, your dreams to make the Olympics, unfortunately, you might have to disagree with yourself along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might have to do what is, is best for yourself even though it might not be best in your, in your own opinion for what's best for the community, even the, the, excuse me, the synchronized swimming community. So, I mean, it, it sounds extremely difficult and it sounds like you made some very, very hard choices. Um, and you know, it's just, it's just incredible. You've been able to come out of so many of these situations multiple times. I mean, so what was that like between you and your friend? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you guys are still friends now, but at the time that just seems like it would be such a huge rift for you, your team, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the Stanford team, your friendship, your national team. I mean, all these things happening at once again to a very young girl. I mean, how did you do it? I know it's a very general question, but like how, like, I know you said you went out and party that month, but like, how the heck did you get through all of this and like make yeah. it to the other side? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely more to the story in terms of my, the relationship between my, my duet partner Mm -hmm. and I, Olivia, I think I definitely considered going off with her and Mm -hmm. going to join this coach. My big concern was because of my back. This coach was very, very tough physically. Like she's known for keeping people in the pool for 12 hours a day, you know, very long days. She's a great coach, but I was I thought I was like, she's going to kill me. Mm-hmm. Like she's going to break my body. I'm not going to be able to handle it. So that was my main reason for not wanting to join her. And I think Olivia kind of understood that that, that was my main concern. But again, it was tough because here we are kind of doing the same thing mm-hmm. for years and years and years. And then we split off. And I think for me at that point, you know, at this point we are almost one year out from the games. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking I'm like tunnel vision Olympics and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, it's one year. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I have to go all in mm-hmm. for this one year to see if I can make it because I had already come that far. And I just, I, I didn't understand the people who just quit. You know, like there were you people spent along six the way. Years, six years, eight years, seven years, however long it was, you spent that entire amount of time working towards one goal. I yeah. mean, it's very yeah. understood that you would try and at least see it through, right? Yeah, definitely. And so that's why I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to, to, to try to make it. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I, at least I know that I gave it 100% of everything I have physically, mentally, emotionally. And by the time that I did go back to the national team, at least I felt like I had a direction that I was going and I wasn't just hanging out in limbo. Mm-hmm. And that in itself was a hard decision to make because I had to make the move to Indianapolis from California. And, you know, my dad's very sick. I'm asking my mom, you know, should I go? Should I not? I felt like I really should be home with my family because she was working full time. My brother was young. Being immigrants, we don't have any family here. Like there's nobody to help. There's friends, but friends aren't really Mm -hmm. the same as having relatives. And so that was a really tough choice to make. And she told me, you know, she's like, I, I can handle it for now. Go and do this thing that you really want to do. If I really need you to come back, if it's like, you know, I just can't handle it anymore, then I'll let you know. So to have her blessing, I think was really great for me because I felt really guilty leaving when I felt like I should be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, so when I did make the move to Indianapolis, it was like, okay, at least I'm on the team now. Now I can kind of like work from, from inside, inside the program and then kind of see, see how it goes from Mm -hmm. there. So then you were able to, um, and not to make light of the situation, obviously, but the weather in 
Indiana isn't quite what it's like in California. So there's yeah. always that side of it too. <laughs> Obviously not to make light of a situation, but that's, I mean, that's always top of my mind. What's the weather like? Mm-hmm. So that's just me. But I mean, so you go out to Indiana, you make the team or mm-hmm. you're pretty much placed on the team. As you said, you ran, you did one program and then a couple of weeks later, you're asked to do a duet as well with a girl that you've never done or a female woman that you've never done a duet with before the other mm-hmm. person that you did you were partners with for 10 years. So what was, I mean, obviously getting thrown into that situation, it's not like you've never done a duet before, but at the same time, it's, it's a new routine. It's a new program. It's an even new coach. I mean, you said the, the, the woman from Japan who helped Spain Mm -hmm. to bring a medal, um, a new partner. What, what is the, I guess, Oh, I'm sorry, but what's the synchronization between two duet partners and being able to kind of, I mean, there has to be some sort of element of knowing what you're going to do when you're going to do it. Oh, so yeah, was, totally. I mean, just that situation alone, just getting a brand new partner, not, a, not including half your team is new as well. What was that like? And, and how confident were you in that just entire situation? Yeah, no, that that's, that's a really good question because usually, so Probably for people who don't know synchro very very much, you you maybe can't tell. <laughs> you that's maybe me. can't. can't and probably tell. most of the people listening. Sorry if we're yeah, being. Yeah, no, that's that's okay. But when you, when you watch when you watch a synchronized swimming du- duet, it's probably most evident in a duet. You can tell if they really have that like unseen connection together versus just two people swimming the same routine next to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's like something you can't quite put your finger on, but it's like a togetherness, and you really the way you get that is really by spending time outside the pool, inside the pool, training together, really getting in sync. Mm-hmm. Easy to say, but it's true. After you, after you train together for you know, months or years, you really just start to kind of get on the same wavelength. And duets in other countries train for years together. Like some of them train from age nine all the way until the Olympics. And then they're really like twins. So for us, for Mary and I, and I had been on national teams with her before, and she was at a much higher level than I was. She was the national team soloist, and the soloist is, you know, the best person on the team. So for me, I had to swim up to her level, and we had to come together really quick. And I think we both knew, and our coach knew, this was going to be a really quick turnaround. And so we both just kind of put our heads together. I mean, I personally think that it was harder for me because I had to – like get my skill level up in a very short amount of time up to her because you can't have one person, you know, sticking their leg out of the water up to their mid thigh and the other person being at their kneecap so that they're not in line in the water. You have to be at the same level and you want to be at the highest level possible, obviously. So I, I think it was kind of like a small miracle that we ended up coming together and we had a great showing at, at Pan Am's. Like our team looked really good. Our duet looked good. We got second behind Canada which, you know, I thought it was great that we didn't drop to third. I think Brazil, Brazil was right after us. So we were really happy. Like it was, it was a big challenge. Our, our team had a lot of issues. We were training in Colorado Springs again, where the altitude is really high. Our coach was pushing us really hard. I think for that six weeks, there was always somebody who was sick or injured. At one point we had like five people in the pool instead of 10 because something was happening to everyone just because of how tough the training was. But I know that we were all, we all knew how important this year was. And I especially knew how important it was because I had just gotten a chance to be in the duet. And again, I was, I was going to do whatever I could to keep myself in that spot. It's like, once you get it, you do not want to let go of it because the best way to show that you could be in the duet and that you're good enough to be in the duet is to 
is to actually physically show yourself when you're in it. When you're not in the duet and you're in the team, it's really hard to kind of climb up to that spot. But once you have the opportunity to show yourself, you have to take full advantage of it. So again, it was kind of like a sink or swim moment. You got to either rise up to the challenge or, or you don't. And I knew that I, even through pain and through, you know, emotional, physical, mental stress, I, I knew that I had to give it my, sh- my, be- my best shot. And you did. And that's, that's the best part. I mean, you made it to the Olympics that year. I mean, that's just so incredible. Yeah. Everything you've been through over the last, I mean, let's call it five or six years um, was worth it. I mean, you, you yeah. did it, you, you made it. And I just think that's incredible and learning more about your story and exactly what happened in the UN, USA synchronized swimming and, and how all that kind of unfolded, unfortunately for some people, fortunately for others and just how it happened. And then the, the process of, going to school, leaving school, going to school, leaving to school, and, and just doing mm-hmm. all of that and, and the emotional stress on yourself, obviously with your family included, that's not even, that's like even more just to throw on. I mean, the, the, everything that was happening in the pool and outside of the pool wrapped around the team was probably enough. And then throw on top of it, your father was extremely sick. I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. that's just absolutely crazy having to move and, away, moving to multiple and places. we haven't gotten to the best part yet. We haven't even gotten to the we best part yet. The most dramatic part. Oh my gosh. We haven't even gotten <laughs> the drama to the drama continues. So you, you get second in the Pan Am games. You win silver medal there, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. won for the duet, but you also won, you won the two. Team as well. You won yeah. for, so, so the team even was able to come together mm-hmm. that quickly. Yeah. I mean, if that's not yeah. perseverance and, um, you know, an unbelievable amount of effort on everyone's part, that's incredible. But it sounds like there's even more to come. So please, enlighten us on what else happened. There is. Yeah. So after we got back from Pan Am's, you know, we're on a high. This was, we did such a great job. Everybody was happy. Um, so we are the national team. We just went to the Pan American Games with the Pan Am team as per the U.S. Olympic Olympic Committee's rules, there has to be an official Olympic trials. So even if this is Olympic year, you still have to try out again to be officially on the Olympic, uh, they didn't call it an Olympic team, an Olympic squad, Olympic training squad. So that December, we go to Olympic trials. So the way that you do it is you, you swim individually. This is how any national team trials and synchro works. You compete in all different things. You know, you have the routine, you have some synchro skills, you have some land skills. They judge some like psychological skills those are like more intangible I guess and then they pick a squad based on based on the rankings and then once you make the team they pick the duet and being named to the Olympic duet is like the ultimate you know that you are going to the Olympics because they take 24 duets qualify for the Olympics only eight teams qualify for the Olympics but with the teams there's a a continental qualification so every continent has their own either like a Pan American Games, an Asian Games, European Championship, something like that. So one team from each of those gets to, gets to go to the Olympics. So that's five teams. The host country also gets a team. So for the London Olympics, Great Britain got, a team, got the European qualification spot. So then to make up the rest of the three teams, so you got five from the continent, you have three more spots, you have to go to the Olympic qualifier, which usually is held in April of Olympic year, and you have to get the top three spots. So based on the U.S. team's ranking, we would have gotten like sixth or seventh and not third. So because there were just other countries that, that were much, much better than us. So for the team, it was like we, we possibly could make it, but it would be very, very hard. For the duet, there's 24 spots. So you're going to make it. You know, it's just it's pretty much a given. So being named to the Olympic duet was the ultimate, like you are going to the Olympics. So 
the way that they had run the trials in previous years for the, for the Olympic duet was you would come as a duet. So like Mary and I would compete as a duet. This year they decided everybody was going to try out individually and then they would pick not necessarily based on ranking order, like how well you scored on everything, but a committee would talk about which two people would possibly be the best fit together. So it didn't, it wouldn't necessarily be myself and my duet partner. It could be me and somebody from a different team and a different duet, for example. So, so just to, so, and this is in April of the Olympic this year. Is in, this is in December of 2011. So in April is the Olympic qualification with all, like with all oh, the, other okay, okay. Just, so, to, just to be on the U S team. Okay. So, so in December, let's call it, eight months before Mm -hmm. they're deciding who should be a duet together, even though we just spoke about how other teams, other countries are, some of their (laughs) duets are together from a extremely young age. Because you have to be, as we said, and with the millions of puns we have so far in sync with each other. Mm -hmm. And they decided all of a sudden, these are some smart people I'm assuming deciding that, Oh yeah, eight months is, is a good amount of time to have our duets together. Did that, I mean, that must have frustrated the heck out of you guys. Yeah, so I think we knew that we were going to have to, it's just kind of like a formality. You have to try out again. But we figured we're the 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 national team duet. Yeah. We just competed together. Like, it would just make sense to keep keep us together. Like, why would you try to ruffle any feathers and pick a new duet. So we kind of figured it was a it was a given that they would mm-hmm. pick us. The the drama started when Olivia, my my old duo partner who went to train with the coach who was fired, she had a new partner. Her name was Michelle and their whole plan was that they were going to train with this coach here in California and they would compete on their own that summer while I was on the national team and that they would come to Olympic trials and like wow everyone and be named as the Olympic duet. So they, they would kind of bypass the national team route that Mary and I took and that they would kind of, you know, get that, get that duet spot ahead of us. That, that was their plan. We, the scores that we received at our competitions were much higher than what they had gotten, but they also were competing as a club, a club duet, not as the national team duet. So sometimes there's some like political subjectivity when you're not competing as an official USA Mm -hmm. duet. So they could have gotten those scores, lower scores, just because of that fact. Mm -hmm. So we come to this trials, we compete individually, which was a new thing. And the way that the rankings ended up was Mary was first, Michelle was second. And that was the, she was the partner Mm -hmm. of my old duet partner, Olivia. And I was third and Olivia was fourth. So it was kind of like, like this, like Mm -hmm. they went one and three and two and four. So and, but that's just the rankings. It, they, they're not required to take numbers one and two, or they're not required to keep any, any of the existing duets together, but a committee goes and deliberates and then decides. So they announced, they announced the Olympic squad at that trials, but they came out from their deliberation and said, we're not ready to make a decision. We haven't gotten to a consensus. There, I think there's five people in the committee. They just they couldn't agree to who they were going to pick as the Olympic duet. So we leave that trials the biggest decision of all who is the Olympic duet has not been decided. We go back home. It's like the holidays, the holidays are about to come. We're training as a team. It's really awkward because we don't know who's going to, you know, who's going to do what. Finally, they, they get us, they get us in a room where I think they talked to us individually and they said, the Olympic duet is going to be Mary and Michelle. So number one and number two. So they pretty much decided to split the duets 
there was still a lot of drama in U.S. and girl, like, again, which camp should, should win this camp with the fired coach or the new national team duet. So they pretty much decided to just pick a person from, from both duets and stick them together. They've never slammed together before. They don't like each other. They're from two opposing camps. I think they did it, I guess, to try to keep everyone happy. So I was, I was asked, do you, are you, would you, are you accepting the reserve position? So I would be like the alternate. And I was crushed. I was like, I don't understand why they would do this to break up a duet who has clearly done well, who has been training together to, like you said, eight months before the Olympics, try to put a new duet together. I don't think it's a good idea, but I was like, I mean, I'll, I'll take the reserve position, I guess. I mean, if anything happens, I would be, I would be moved up. And what ended up happening was Michelle declined her spot on the duet. So she said, pretty much if she was going to go to the Olympics, she wanted to go with Olivia. She did not want to go with anybody else, which I thought, you know, if you get named to the Olympic duet, gosh, you take that and doesn't even matter who you're swimming with. Like you get a shot to go to the Olympics, you go. Of course, I was happy because I, you know, as the third person, I got moved up. And so we were officially the Olympic duet, which was great. You know, I was happy. We started training together. My back was still not not doing well. And it was getting to the point where like I couldn't sleep. I was getting, you know, pain going down my leg. It was just really bad. Um, and finally I went to a surgeon in Indianapolis and he said, look, I think it's this piece of bone that's in the way of a nerve. I think we can do surgery. We can we can make some more space for that nerve and you'll feel much better. It's not a very complicated surgery. You should be back in the pool, you know, within a couple of weeks. So it's January. The Olympics are in August. We weren't really training as a duet during the time of all of this like deliberation because we weren't allowed to. Mm-hmm. We, you know, there was no duet officially named. So I decided to go for it and have the surgery. Again, big risk because with any surgery, you don't know how your body's going to react. You don't know how fast it's going to, you know, it's going to heal. But luckily my coach gave us, gave me the blessing. I, now that I look back, I'm like, that was crazy. That was insane in January to have surgery. And this is like, you're, you're in a, you're in a team sport. You need to practice together. That's not like gymnastics. Like, oh, you can, you can do your own recovery and you can come back on your own time. It's like, you need to train with another person. That person's waiting for you to get better. So I had the surgery. The surgeon said, ideally, he would have liked for me to be out for three months and Three months later, we were competing at the Olympic qualifier in London. So it was just a very, very quick, quick recovery. But again, I was like, I, I've got to do this. I can't go on like this anymore. I'm not going to be able to make it until August, until the Olympics, unless I have the surgery. So I decided to, to take a risk. And luckily, it ended up working out okay. But as we're training for this Olympic qualifier, this is where the, the, big, the big drama blow up happens. Wait, 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 wait. There's more drama? There's more drama. That How is this possible? The, you weren't the big, so. so let me the big, the let me take off. a step back. Then, geez, like so, where you weren't named to the Olympic duet, even though you just crushed it a year earlier mm-hmm. in the Pan American Games, you got silver after only six weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. You said yeah. of working with Mary, who seems very incredible at what she does, if she keeps routinely being named the number one yeah. um, in synchronized swimming in the United States. So, uh, you know, obviously, shout out to her. But so, so, like, what was that like? I mean, being named a reserve obviously is incredible. There's only a handful of Olympic athletes. So, mm-hmm. you know, reserves are still, hopefully, in my opinion, should still be looked at as, as incredible elite athletes. But did you, 
feel like stabbed in the back? Like you obviously, it seems like in your opinion, I don't know, hopefully I'm not putting words in your mouth, but the only reason it was named the, the two athletes that were was, as you said, kind of to keep both camps happy and hopefully kind of bring the, you know, bring this to a culmination to an end and, and yeah. finally just be able to move forward together rather than having two separate, you know, fissions, you know, fractions, mm-hmm. um, you know, was that a, a total stab in the back? I mean, not to, again, you know, terrible at puns today. I'm sorry. It's just too easy. No, no, like, no. Like, was that, well, obviously because your back injury, sorry, that <laughs> didn't land as well then. Um, but like what, um, yeah, there we go. Sorry. My bad, my bad. No, um, no, but no. like, what, what is like, did you feel like just completely like it? Cause it sounds like it wasn't warranted and not, not, not to take anything away from the Michelle. I'm sure like, obviously she's amazing at what she does. And I, again, I'm not trying to put anybody down or, or anything like that, but because the number one person and the number three person were partners. It just mm-hmm. sounds like, again, because you've been able to work together and, and as we've been saying, you need to be in sync with each other and understand what the other person is going to do mm-hmm. at the exact time and, and be really, I, I mean, I keep coming back to in sync, but like, what, what were those feelings? Like, obviously you made it and thankfully, not thankfully, but you know, obviously the other um, Michelle, Michelle, right. She mm-hmm. was the one who decided to not mm-hmm. um, continue. So, you know, obviously it worked out in your favor, but what was that feeling like? That has to be like a complete and utter just, I don't even know what the word is. Like, what did you do in yeah. that situation? Yeah, it felt, it felt awful. It felt like a political decision. It didn't feel fair at all. Again, why would you split up a duet that just did well? And that was only training for a month and a half. Like, imagine what we could do if we trained together for a year, mm-hmm. two years. And it felt like the USA Synchro community was completely split. Like these people wanted this, these people wanted this. And to try to keep both parties happy, they, they decided to just pluck one person and one person. If that's the route that they, if that's like who ended up going to the Olympics, I don't think they would have been able to, to come together and produce, you know, a product that, that we ended up showing in London. So it hurt. Like it didn't feel like, I felt like I had just proven that I could take the workload and be in this, in this top position in the duet. And then it got taken away simply because of this behind the scenes drama. So it was, it was tough. Like, I, I don't know how else to, I don't know how else to how say did, it. it how, did, how did Mary feel about this, especially after being successful with you in, in, in a very short amount of time? Like, how did she feel about the whole situation of, being like potentially having to swim with someone else obviously of a very similar skill set and a similar ability naturally if you guys are two and three you're relatively close I have to assume but like what how did she feel about that did she reach out to you and say hey like obviously this is a crappy situation I'm still going to take it as you said if mm-hmm. you're named to this duet team you're going to the Olympics so obviously you're, you don't you're, that's your goal you're going to do it but how did she either console you did you feel wronged by her I mean it's not really her fault but like mm-hmm. like what were those feelings between you and your your current partner before I get to the feelings between you and your former partner mm-hmm. yeah I don't obviously she didn't have any control over it. I think it was it was hard for her as well because she she had a, a guaranteed spot in the Olympic duet and now we had just built a relationship and now she would have to start completely over with somebody else I can imagine that that was also very stressful for her as well and it was also a little awkward because we're kind of like, we're two opposing kind of like teams like Mm -hmm. this duet try to go a back way to try to take us out of the duet spot out of the, out of that national team duet spot. So 
to, to swim with somebody who try, was trying to do that, I think was probably not, not, not an easy pill to swallow for her. Um, of course, it ended up, you know, being okay. And luckily, the, the amount of time it took for, for Michelle to decide, you know, I, don't, I think it was maybe like a couple of days. So it was only a couple of days that I had to live with that, like, extreme mm. disappointment of not just being like one spot short from, from my goal. And also, I mean, you had surgery afterwards. I mean, then you had to deal with, oh, okay, by the way, like, I really appreciate that we get to swim. I'm going to have to have back surgery. Like, and then throw that into the mix as well. But before we get to that, I mean, what, like, Olivia, your former partner, did you guys have any communications during this process? Were you pretty much not talking for a little while? What, What happened in that? I mean, this is just this is an incredible story. And like, it's just like, so how did that whole process work with your former teammate of mm-hmm. 10 years? Like, what did you do? Did you guys have any communications at all? Were you talking about, you know, what was happening, why it was happening kind of thing? Mm-hmm. It was weird. It was one of those situations where like, I feel like we just tried to kind of ignore it and you do your thing. I'll do my thing. And we're just kind of going to do it and not try to talk about it. Probably the mature thing to do would be to sit down together and like talk it through and say like, you know, this is why I did this. This is why you did that. But we were both so encapsulated with, with what we were doing that we, we never had that conversation. And it was awkward because now we were all part of the same team. We were all in the same Olympic training squad. So we're training together. We're supposed to be, you know, not, we don't have to be the best of friends, but we have to at least get along with each other to be able to swim on a team together. So it was very awkward. Somebody who I spent like my whole childhood with, and now all of a sudden, like she's trying to, 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 you know, to take my spot with this other person it was just weird. So we really just took the immature way and just ignored it and just didn't, you know, didn't, didn't talk about it. But Uh, the real kicker came when, and I remember this was right after I had my surgery, I was still at home, I was recovering and, and she came over and she said, look, I just want you to know, I want you to give you a heads up that I, I want to know more about why they made the decision that they made with the, with the duet, with the duet selection. So I'm going to do some more investigating and digging. And I said, okay, I mean, that's, that's your prerogative. If you, you know, if you want to try to find out like why, why that specific decision was made, that that's up to you. Like, I appreciate you coming to me. I didn't realize what would happen after. Thank you so much for listening to part one of the episode with Maria Koroleva. She was absolutely incredible. As you heard, we left it on a little bit of a cliffhanger to make sure that you're getting excited for part two. Part two is going to be a little bit shorter, um, but at the same time, it is still chock full of real life drama, real life things that happened and, and real life ways that you know, you really didn't think would be happening, but you know, behind the scenes, anything's possible. So if you guys don't mind, make sure to follow Maria on her socials. They'll be in the show notes. Check her out what she's doing there. She's got some pretty incredible things coming up and going on. So super excited, super happy for her there. Uh, follow us at our athletes.us uh, on Instagram. Have any questions for me? Want to get in touch with any of these people? Give me a holler, Michael at ourathletes.us. Check out our website, www.ourathletes.us. Um, and other than that, I mean, please rate, comment, review, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Again, if they're on a long car ride anytime soon, I think part one and part two of this episode specifically will be incredible. Keep them enthralled. Keep them engaged and really get them going um you know and also to help out you know our olympic athletes a little bit more because they deserve some recognition so 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Super excited that you did. Hope you enjoy the second part and hope you enjoy all the other episodes that come along with it.